Today, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 11, and that's what Father John just read to us. And uh, in there, I think what Matthew's trying to do is elicit a faith response out of the reader. And so we are the readers, and so I would like to challenge you with a faith response this morning. Uh, First of all, he brings in a shocking bit of news to shock us out of our doldrums. And then he brings us uh, to a challenge, to a question. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Who is this Messiah in your midst? So first we encounter doubt in somebody very shocking, and then a faith response for the reader, you and me. So turn with me if you will. If you have your your Bibles, chapter 11, verse 1 and following. Uh, So in verse 1, it reads like this. Uh, When Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so what he's been doing for the last 10 chapters is he's born, and then he goes on ministry. And he shows who the Messiah is, who he came to be. And he does this through word. Remember the word of God preached by Jesus, uh, the kingdom on the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom ethics. So he, he preaches the word so that they'll know who he is. But he also, through deeds and actions, witnesses that he is the Messiah. Remember in the previous chapters, he's opened the eyes of the blind. He has unloosed the tongues of the mute. He's raised up the dead and caused the lame to leap like deers, as Isaiah once prophesied. You see, all that's great stuff, right? To us 21st century people, we look at that and say, oh yeah, that's what the Messiah is supposed to be doing anyway. He's just doing Messiah stuff. Isn't that cute, Jesus? We're we're not worried, we're not perplexed, we're not bothered by it all. But there is one guy in this story who is both worried, bothered, and perplexed by what he has seen and heard about Jesus. And it is, of all people, his cousin, John, for goodness sake. John the baptizer, remember he baptized Jesus in the wilderness. John's worries are clear if we look at verse 2 and 3. Let's look at that for a second. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one, or shall we look for another? That's a curious question, isn't it? It's almost a shocking question filled with great doubt in cousin John. John, of all people, should have understood that his very mission in life was to be the herald of the Messiah. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. He knew that he was to become the one voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah had prophesied about. He is Jesus' herald, and now he's asking the question, shall we look for another? He was the one who was at the baptism when the Spirit of God came down like a dove upon Jesus and inaugurated his earthly ministry. And that voice came down from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why is he questioning now, for goodness sake? Why is he singing a different tune? I mean, he's singing the U2 song from years ago, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Why are you asking now about cousin Jesus? You've got 10 chapters of word and deed on that resume, and now you're questioning? Well, here's the reason behind the doubts, I believe. And it's both, both of these are found in verse 2. It says, when John heard in prison, 
That's where he is. He's in prison. That's a clue to our first doubt. He's in darkness. The darkness is overwhelming him. The darkness is closing in around him. John's life is about to be extinguished. John is losing his mind and head, both physically and figuratively, as you know the story. He's in crisis mode. How many of us, naturally, when we reach the crisis mode in our lives, begin to have doubts? Where are you, God, in all of this? Where are you, Lord? Why don't you come to rescue me in the midst of this crisis situation? So we reach out for reassurance from above. Have you ever been in one of those seasons? One of those seasons where you're waiting for the CAT scan results to be returned and you're crying out for reassurance from the Lord, where are you in this God? Come mightily, come speedily to save me. Have you ever suffered from chronic pain in some way where every day seems to be a grind and you're like, where are you God in all of this? And sometimes you begin to ask deeper questions like, is there a God at all? Why don't you come to save? That's where John is. You ever notice our our troubles are, are so much larger than life in the darkness of the night? You ever wake up at 2 a.m. with one of those questions just tumbling around in your mind and and you just can't let it go? And and you can't go back to sleep from 2 to 6 a.m. And then the next morning you get up and you fix yourself a cup of coffee and the sun rises and you think about that thing that kept you awake all night in the darkness. You're like, why was I worried about that for goodness sake? Well, John's in that dark night. The old mystics used to call it the dark night of the soul. So he is in prison, that's the where, the dark night, and the what? The deeds of Christ. They cause him to be perplexed and questioning and worried about whether he is the one or shall we reach out for one to come. Are you the one? Now why would the deeds of Christ bug him in such a way? Well, John had one major flaw in his theology, and that was that that he saw Jesus as the warrior which is what most people in the Jewish world at that time saw Jesus as. That first he would come in warrior fashion to judge sin. Remember, two times in Matthew's gospel, John says the one when talking about Jesus. The first time was at that baptism. He says to the crowd before he baptizes Jesus, the one who is mightier than I is coming, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And then he says to the crowd, the one is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand to cleanse the threshing floor of God's kingdom and to take the chaff, the bad people in this world, and burn them with unquenchable fire, but the good wheat to lift up. You see, that is what John is waiting for. That's the one he's looking for. And what does Jesus do? He does not look like that at all. Jesus is not like the mighty David of old, his ancestor. He doesn't gather around a mighty group of people called David's mighty men who will help him secure an earthly kingdom so that he may sit on a glorious throne in Jerusalem. John is saying, Jesus, you're not like David at all. In fact, the reports I've been receiving about your deeds, you're identifying with the poor. You're hanging out with losers, Jesus. You are raising the dead and healing the blind and opening up ears and unstopping the mouths of mutes. 
you're wasting your kingdom time. Shall we look for another? Do you hear it? Clear, honest, unmistakable doubt in Jesus' cousin, the front runner, the herald of Jesus the Messiah. So the doubts are twofold. He's in the darkness. The doubt is also Jesus is not matching up with his understanding of Messiah. Now look at how Jesus deals with doubt. And this gives us a sense of how he would deal with our doubt as well. Jesus does not come in and chide and berate John for asking the question, is there one yet to come? He does not get angry and says, cuz, why you be doubting me now? He doesn't do any of that, does he? He comes in tenderly and lovingly and patiently and works with John in his doubt. And my friends, if you have doubt today, if there are obstacles in your faith journey, know that God doesn't come in to to judge you in that. He wants to love you and tenderly walk with you into a place of faith. Jesus is not offended by the question, are you the one? He wants us to ask that and to ask it honestly. And I feel that at Christmas time, a lot of us have some doubts. A lot of us have some blues at Christmas time, especially when we look across the table, perhaps at a vacant chair at Christmas dinner where a loved one used to sit and is no longer there. And maybe we wrestle with God. God, why did this happen? Or maybe we go to one parent's house at lunchtime on Christmas Day and and then another parent's house, the father who has the new girlfriend, Christmas night. You're like, why such division, Lord? Why? Some of us will have our doubts. Where is God in all this? And guess what? You need to hear a reassuring word that that's okay. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, was tempted in every way just as we are, yet remain without sin. He identifies with the suffering and the poor. He brings good news to the poor. Jesus himself had his own dark night of the soul and dark Gethsemane. The night before he would be crucified, he cried out to the Father, trying to understand his own Messiahship, and said, Father, let this cup pass from me if it be your will. Jesus wrestled with God, and it's okay if you wrestle with God. But do not wallow in your pity long. Jesus does not want you to stay in a dungeon of self-doubt and godly doubt. Jesus comes in and immediately corrects John's understanding of Messiah, so that he could see Jesus for who he is. He says this, You disciples go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. The deaf are hearing, and the dead are being raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Remember what that was, our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah? Guys, go and tell John that I am the Messiah. Look at my deeds. They jive perfectly with what the Old Testament predicted of me. He reminds John, though, that before he's going to wear a crown of glory, he's got to wear a crown of thorns and identify with suffering. He reminds John, before he pierces the world because of sin and judgment, he himself must be pierced on the cross of Calvary. He tells John, before I judge the world, I must suffer suffering on the cross myself. Before I bring down this majestic heavenly Jerusalem and make all things right again, John, I'm going to have to be born of an unwed mother in a podunk, backwater, dingy little town called Bethlehem. Before I ascend to my throne in glory, I must descend to my people, to the spiritually lame, 
to the spiritually blind, to the spiritually broken. Paul would later sum it up, and this is a good summation of the Christmas message itself. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. He became poor in his poverty to identify with us so that he might lift us up to his place in heaven. C.S. Lewis would sum it up, the Christmas mystery. He said, God became man that he might lift man up to be like God. You see, Jesus is stooping for the poor, coming not to condemn the world, but to save it. So yes, John, yes, I will come as the Lion of Judah to judge sin. But first, I must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now the challenge. Let me say that Jesus would be a cruel Messiah indeed if he left John in that dungeon of darkness, despair, and doubt. He wouldn't leave him there. If he didn't come up to the cave of doubt and like he did with Lazarus say, Lazarus, come out of the darkness. If he didn't do that, he would be a cruel Messiah indeed. And he would not be the great physician No physician would leave his patient on the operating table without operating and healing his doubt. And we find that healing for John in a challenge. And here's the challenge. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is. This is one of those many beatitudes. Remember chapter 5 when Jesus talked about blessed are the poor in spirit for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is those who mourn for they will be comforted. This is one of those many Beatitudes. Blessed. That word blessed, makarion in Greek, that comes from makarion. It means basically, uh, blessed is tied to belief. It means to believe in the Lord, and by that belief, the Lord extends his favor and grace to us. So it's in a, a place that the old hymnist used to say of blessed assurance in God's goodness and mercy and favor towards you. So so Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who has faith in who I am. But look at this at the end, who is not offended in me. Now that word in Greek, offended, is scandalon. Scandalon is to be offended to the degree that you no longer believe. And so basically he's saying to John, you can either be in a blessed state of peace and rest and accept me as your Messiah just as I am or you can, call, you can look at my words and look at my deeds and find scandalous words about the Messiah. It's either blessed comfort or unrestful scandal. You make the choice, John. By God's grace, you have to choose. So he's saying, John, choose. He's saying, Alice, choose. He's saying, John, choose. Everybody in this church, we have to choose either to accept him for the Messiah Or look at his words and deeds and cast them away as scandalous. We need to open our eyes. We need to have our sight restored. And let the Holy Spirit speak to us about that Messiah. For some of us, like John, it'll mean studying. Having Jesus come in and give us the truth. And you might want to pick up a good book like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Or John Stott's Basic Christianity. Or you may want to take the Alpha course or get in a Bible study and open up your scriptures and find out who the one is, who he came to be, what he came to do. But Jesus does call us to take action. 
to ask and seek and knock and pursue. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the shades will fall down from the eyes, the scales will drop, and the eyes of faith will open. And you'll find the one. But you also must come in spiritual poverty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he means by that is, blessed is the one who comes to me and drops their arrogance and drops their pride and drops that crazy idea that I can be master of my own life and I can succeed on my own terms. And that's a scandalous message, friends. It's scandalous. Because when Jesus comes to me and says, call me Lord, what he's saying to me is that you are incompetent to lead your own life. You need me as your Lord. What he's saying when he says, Trip, I'm your Savior, he's saying you're not powerful enough to save yourself. You must come to me. And that's scandalous to some. To others, it's blessed assurance in faith. And his great promise is that God only comes to the spiritually deaf, the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind, the spiritually mute, those who will recognize their poverty before the Lord, recognize their wretchedness, and come to the only Savior the world has ever known. Christ Jesus. St. Augustine once put it like this, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. Are you the one or is there one to come? I want to close with a little story. I once knew an atheist and, uh, and he was on his second marriage. He owned a haberdashery store in Orangeburg, South Carolina. His wife was moderately Christian. He was atheist. They didn't go to church. They were on the rocks of their marriage. They're about to break up when she went to the Presbyterian church and, and found the Lord. And she got blessed assurance. She got that blessed Makarion. And she wanted that for her husband. So Jane came home and said, Frank, I want you to go to church with me. And Frank said, no, none of that religious mumbo jumbo. Well, that's the PG-13 version. It was actually a little bit more flowery than that. And uh, she said, well, what about if you played golf with my minister? You like golf? Certainly you can do that. And once again, the flowery language came out. Total rejection. Next day, Jane's bags were packed beside the front door. Frank came home and saw the bags packed and said, oh, I guess she's serious about it this time. And so he puts a call to the golf shop and makes a tea time for the next day. And the atheist and the preacher are in the golf cart together. Sounds like a good joke, right? The atheists and preacher in the golf cart together. So, so they make nine holes and everything's going well. And the preacher turns to the atheist, Frank, and says, Frank, what's your problem with Jesus? Is it the cross? What's your problem with religion? He said, I don't have a problem with religion. I knew you'd get me in this golf cart and you'd corner me with your questions. I hate you and I, I don't uh, appreciate what you're asking me. He said, no, back off. That's the only question I have. Is it the cross of Christ? And he went home, and that, that question pierced his heart. And for the next several weeks, he lay awake at night, in the darkness of the night, with that question on his heart. Is it the cross of Christ? Is that my objection? Do I not believe that God could die for me, that the Messiah might give his life for my life, for my sins? Then he went to the library, and he checked out every book he could on Christ, his life and his ministry and his death and resurrection and ascension, and slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit began to move, and finally one day he found the one. He gave his life to the one. And he left the darkness, and it saved his life and saved his marriage because he found the one. Later, he would be lifted up as a deacon of the church, and 
Still later, Frank Limehouse would become a priest of Christ's Holy Church and serve St. Helena's for over a decade. And still later, he would become dean of Birmingham Cathedral and serve that place well. And because he found the one, because he asked and sought and knocked and prayed for God's grace and God's truth to be revealed, he found the one. So if you're stumbling in the darkness, humble yourself. The spiritually poor can still find the one. 